Hello, I'm Dr. Roberta Shaler, and welcome to Emotional Savvy. Sometimes our kids, particularly our teens and young teens, are demonstrating that they're having difficulty coping. And we need to be really aware of that. We need to know when it's just normal and natural, they're going through teen stuff, and when they're really in trouble. Today, my guest is Dr. Brian Laquanen. He is an expert in this field. We're going to talk about what we can help our kids with in terms of low self-image, depression, anxiety, maybe some kind of abuse or bullying they're suffering so important. And if you are having this issue or you know someone who is, encourage them to join us today on Emotional Savvy and hear my guest, Dr. Brian Lequanen. Welcome to Emotional Savvy, the Relationship Help Show. I'm Dr. Roberta Shaler. If you're ready to increase your confidence in conversations and conflict, deepen your self-awareness, expand your connectedness, and enrich your relationship with yourself and other humans you care about, and even those you wish you didn't, you're in the right place. Enjoy today's episode. Hello and welcome to this episode of Emotional Savvy, the Relationship Help Doctor in the House. That's me and I am here today to introduce you to a fabulous new guest, Dr. Brian Laquanen. And he is a specialist in so many things and you can find him at abetterliferecovery.com. Don't forget the uh, at the beginning, abetterliferecovery.com. We're going to be talking today about the things that go into helping younger people, young adults, being able to recognize what's going on as early as possible, knowing where to get help, knowing what kind of help to get. We're going to talk a little about Dr. Brian's specialty in sleeping disorders. And of course, we're going to relate that all to my favorite topic, living, loving, and leaving hijackles. So you're going to want to stay tuned to this episode. So I'm talking with Dr. Brian Laquanen, and I'm going to tell you a little bit about him in addition to what I said in the intro. He's an addiction and mental health specialist. He serves as the primary therapist at Premier Treatment Centers, A Better Life Recovery, and A Mission for Michael treating clients with complex mental health disorders and their comorbidities, which often include substance abuse disorders. And in addition, he successfully treats clients with, you ready? Anxiety, depression, stress management, PTSD, ADHD, and a variety of other severe mood disorders and the sleep that it causes people to lose. <laughs> so welcome to the program, Dr. Brian. Welcome. Thank you very much for having me. Oh, I'm delighted to speak with other professionals who are endeavoring to help people have the best life possible. And when people are in a situation like that, I help to bring people like yourself so they know where to turn. Just so very important. So I'm always interested to ask my guests, 
How did you choose this line of work? Well, I've always known that listening and helping others has been something that just came naturally to me. I've been told with that with friends and family members, and there just was this draw to people. If there's someone at a get together and they're not joining everybody else, I was typically, for whatever reason, was drawn to that person. And not sure whether it came from, from nature, nurture, or what have you, but I just always felt that draw to help people who may not fit in, who feel left out, who may be struggling. And another thing that I've recognized and feedback that I've gotten from family members is being able to read between the lines, to understand someone, not just what they say, but a lot of what they don't say, their body language, their eye contact, and, and, and have a, an emotional sensitivity to what someone may be undergoing. So that's kind of where it took me. And through my path, it directed me towards mental health and more specifically towards therapy and so forth. So that mm -hmm. is pretty much how I got to this point. Okay. And um, why in the recovery world, what led you from that definite calling to help people to decide that the recovery world was a good place for you? Well, the way it came across for me, I did used to work um, while I was getting a master's degree in adolescent treatment center. And these were adolescents who unfortunately were severely and emotionally abused and multiple failures at group homes, foster care, psychiatric facilities and juvenile hall. And that was a big eye opener for me because of how pervasive substance abuse was. Mm -hmm. and recognizing how children at this age, as young as 12 years old, were trying to cope with distressors in their life, family dysfunction, low self-image, body image, trauma. And I started to realize it was an eye opener for me, I'll be honest with you, when I've come across a 13-year-old client that says that he's been using cocaine daily for the past few years who's been smoking marijuana since he was nine, since he's right. been drinking with his father since he was eight. And for me, I knew that that is something that I'm going to encounter throughout my career that I need to be educated on, to be supportive of, and to recognize that that is going to be definitely a big part of my treatment with people across the board. Mm -hmm. Well, it's interesting that, you know, we share that because um, when this will deepen our conversation, of course, I started working with back in the day when it was called emotionally disturbed children and emotionally disturbed children's homes. And then uh, the, I, the last institution that I worked in, if you like, was a school system where I was the acting principal of a school for at-risk teenagers. So I relate directly to what you're saying because kids are lost. You know, they can be so terribly lost. One of the things that I did in that school, which uh, really speaks to what's happening to many children, is I did a little survey. I had 18 kids in the class at that time, and I said, how many of you eat a meal with your family um, each week? And so we went around and we found out that the range was from there is no food to one child ate one meal a week, Sunday dinner, with their family. Mm 
And in between was no food, get your own food, food cooked, but you didn't come to the table, food cooked, you came to the table, could leave when you wanted to the person who sat through Sunday dinner and engaged with their family. So something as simple as that can tell us about the relationships that are possible to be modeled, to be engaged in, opportunities to be seen and heard and accepted and acknowledged and known and appreciated. If you don't even eat with your family, it's really hard to be seen, isn't it? Absolutely. What research shows is rituals are a very integral part of family cohesiveness, whether or not the, the Sunday outing, the Sunday church gathering, the dinner at night. And the more we find that more families that have some level of ritual tend to have higher levels of cohesiveness, better communication. And you are absolutely right. You're hitting on something where when I think about those young kids, back when I was working at that treatment center was exactly that. When you ask about their family dynamic, their family interaction, dad works graveyard shift, mom is traveling a lot, how we make our own meals. And so you hit upon a really, really important and valid point. And yeah, I, th I think it's something that we is so basic that we can consider that. So listeners, I mean, doesn't it strike you to just think about your own background? How often did you eat with your family? How did that go for you? Did they see you at the table? Did they acknowledge you? Were they interested in you? Or were you from the seen and not heard generation or from the distraction? Or maybe today with everybody's got their iPhone at the phone, at the table. You know, I, <laughs> I took a picture not long ago. I was in New York at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. And I was in this incredible hall of uh, Roman Greco art. I mean, soaring ceilings, 20-foot ceilings, and covered in artifacts, and fabulous. And I took a photograph of four teenagers sitting on a bench, each involved with their phone. Now, for a moment, I appeased myself by thinking they were accessing some kind of wonderful museum guide. <laughs> but I know they weren't. <clears throat> so... <clears throat> This is the way that our world is working, and we need to talk about these things. So I'm so glad that you're here. And I want to remind you, my guest today is Dr. Brian Lequanen. You can find him at abetterliferecovery.com. We're going to talk about these things in more depth. So let's just think about things that happen to, to kids in situations where validation is what's called for and validation is not available. I know for my population, the, the people who are interacting with um, the crazy making things that come along with hijackals, my word for those people who hijack relationships for their own purposes and then scavenge them for power, status, and control. So I, I developed that term, Brian, because too many people were going to the internet and they were putting in whatever's happening in their relationship and they were thinking that the internet was some kind of mental health professional giving them a diagnosis 
And I thought, no, 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 don't be doing that. I mean, that's inappropriate. It's inaccurate, perhaps. And then what it also does is it creates separation because if the internet tells me I'm with a narcissist or a sociopath, then I can say, oh, it's all that other person's fault. And then I won't know what it was that attracted me to that or is attractive to them about me. I won't look at my life and I won't make good decisions. So I want to talk about validation because if you have a parent who is a hijackal, a parent who is narcissistic, for instance, they're only going to validate you as a human being when you make them look good. Mm -hmm. They're not going to validate your thoughts or your feelings or your needs or your wants. In fact, they don't care, right? That, that's the classic thing. You know, the child cries and the hijackal parent says, you have no reason to cry. If you want to cry, I'll give you a reason. I'll be the cause of your pain. Right? So how about kids finding validation in this world now? Well, first and foremost, you brought in a lot of points. And as you're describing all of these things, technology, validation, family, I have all these thoughts going through my head. And so you hit upon a lot of the, the, the important points that are, are across the board. Clients who come uh, to see me for therapy, whether or not they be children, adolescents, adults, whatever stage of life, almost always their struggles or stressors involve some type of interpersonal communication. And involved with interpersonal communication is they're not hearing their perspective heard, which brings me to validation. So that very concept of validation for me has been one of the most integral parts of not only in my personal life, but my, my work as a clinician. Validation, if I may define it in the terms that I define it is to accept someone's truth, right? Mm -hmm. To, it doesn't mean you agree with it. Doesn't mean you always have to believe it, but the fact of accepting someone's truth is one of the most common barriers to when we have more than one person having some type of communication block. And especially with this generation of, of kids and families is I've heard this before. You just don't get me, right? You just don't get me. And I think we've, I've probably said that to my parents at one point in my life. <laughs> However, that is the common theme across the board is you don't get me. And it could be whether a child to a parent, a parent to their parent, uh, an employee to their boss. So validation, once again, to accept someone's truth doesn't mean you agree with it. Because what that does to me, I say it takes off the gloves. Where we struggle a lot is we can't get what I call first base of communication. Because what happens in first base? We address characteristics, traits, attributes. The gloves come on and we become in defensive mode. And when we get in defensive mode, what do we do? We have verbal assaults. We have, in some cases, physical altercations. Validation, what I have found has been the critical element to getting to what I call the second base, where we start to have higher level of communication. So, so validation and some of the ways that I help teach parents or anybody across the board, some of the most powerful ways to validate is number one, just reflecting an emotion, right? If someone comes into you, your child's coming into you and they're upset, they're angry because one of their classmates didn't invite them to weekend birthday party, right? 
our natural instinct, of course, would be to say, well, they don't deserve you as a friend anyway. They, they're lost, right? Which parents or loved ones be coming from a good place. However, what the child, what they're trying to tell you is, this is really hurtful because I don't feel like I belong or I'm not important enough. And simply saying, wow, you sound really hurt by that. Or you sound, what I'm hearing you say is, you thought you were close to your friend and then not being invited just made you think about the closeness of your relationship. Rephrasing what someone's saying or identifying an emotion has been one of the most effective tools to validating someone. Yes, I I love that. And what you're talking about is the fact that you care enough to be empathetic and curious. So you're actually present enough to hear the child or the adult or whomever. You're, you're there, you're fully there, you're interested, and you're curious. So when the child says, well, I didn't get the invitation, instead of the they're there, it's all going to be all right, taking the time to say, oh, what I hear is that that's kind of sad for you because you were expecting something. And maybe you feel, what, a little left out? And then you give them options. They can say, well, I don't feel left out, but, you know. <laughs> and you can have a, a real conversation with the child. So that that's excellent. And it is a form of validation when you're just heard. <laughs> when someone says, you're allowed to have that feeling. You don't have to stay there forever, but right now you're allowed to have that feeling. It, it, there's no right or wrong in feelings. You can have that feeling. And I hear you, and I see you, and... You know, you wouldn't be as specific as this, but, you know, you're reading and saying, well, the corners of your mouth are turned down and your eyes look like you could cry. And the tone of your voice is not your usual confident self. So let me guess, you're feeling a little left out. And yeah, so it really helps kids to be seen. And, you know, we like to think that we're not in that children should be Um, not seen or it should be seen not heard world anymore but many people are because they're so busy you know if it's not information i need from you i'm thinking about something else and parents are often in that situation so taking the time to totally be present and connect with anybody but particularly children is important. You know, I work with a lot of people who have children at various ages, as you can understand, because one of the things that they're going to ask is, should I stay or should I go? Mm -hmm. And depending on the level of brain development and the timing and the number of children and the finances and a whole lot of other things, there are different times when it's best to stay and when to go, barring the fact there's physical or sexual abuse going on, because of separation, individuation, Uh, parietal or prefrontal lobe development, you know, you have to ask those questions um, to find out what's individually going on in that situation. But it never is out of place to get down to eye level with the child and be able to validate their feelings. You bring up eye level, and that's an actual intervention, as you may know. It's called mirroring. That's the third way that we can validate someone. Mm-hmm. It's easy for us 
when we have a five-year-old boy that was just did something all naughty and then our natural instinct as a parent is to stand straight up and so forth and all we have is this five-year-old <laughs> saying what did i do wrong and they're intimidated one of the best things we can ever do is get to their eye level and talk to them yeah. not so much what they did wrong but what did they do right one of those concepts we see out there in the teaching world is catch people doing something right especially kids because yeah. our natural tendency right is to catch them doing something wrong no that's wrong and as we know as we have a lot more shaping of of, of, of positive behaviors when we reinforce the little behaviors leading up to the, uh, the targeted goal behaviors. So catching them do something right is really important. And that way of getting on their eye level, mirroring them is another effective validation tool. Yes. You know, I love that we're aligned in that. I'm always telling people, catch your kids doing something right, catch your partner doing something right, comment on it. Don't make a big deal, just comment so that you change your point of view. But with little kids, so important to get down and be at eye level. You know, I think of some of the, some of the kids that I've had in my office. I don't have an office anymore because I work through video conferencing, but get down with them and see their parent get down and, and actually engage the child, and the child's kind of stunned. Like, I'm so used to doing this. <laughs> and, and when the parent is eye to eye with them and doing the positive reinforcement, then they're not so afraid if the parent gets down eye to eye with them and they say, you know, I think something could be better here. Why don't we do this instead of that? And, and learning how to distract. So I'm glad we're on the same page there. I just want to remind everybody, my guest is Dr. Brian Luquanen, and you can find him at abetterliferecovery.com. So catching people doing something right is a great strategy. So why can't kids, particularly adolescents, access mental health services easily? Well, if I may preempt that a little bit in terms of before discussing the access is one of the things is why aren't kids seeking treatment, mental health therapy? And it goes back to that first base level of communication. Number one, as we all know, we're still dealing, we're making some shifts and some changes and progress in destigmatizing mental health. I think we've come a long way, but as we know, as, as a community, we still have leaps and bounds to still move forward with. And so with that, there's still that stigma around. We have kids who have these beliefs that they're going to be judged, that they're gonna be in trouble, that they shouldn't be feeling this way, that there's gonna be consequences for their misdirection. If they're feeling anxious, that's not normal. So what we're seeing a lot, and you bring that up about the technology, social media what that lends itself is to this constant constant social comparison right as we know they did research um, um some years ago when people would log in and log off their mood on social media and people mood actually decreased they became more sad and depressed or anxious after logging off prior to logging in and so one of the the assertions are is that there's a lot of these comparisons right i think of what what i don't have how i'm supposed to look and behave and when you have 
constant reminders that, hey, I'm excelling in sports and schools and traveling, this image of how everything's going great, there's no room for anxiety. There's no depression there. And so I think somewhat there's this social bar that of what's normal and what's not normal. So that's, mm -hmm. that's another reason in terms of why not only seeking access to services, right, but also why kids aren't starting initiating that process. Yes. Okay, so much in here. I just wanted to go back to our conversation about validation because if you're looking for peer validation, right, like you're speaking about a lot of peer validation, and there's a lot of crazy kids out there who, you know, there may be mean girls or, you know, some of the stereotypes that we have. And then there you are looking for validation. You know, it brings me back to an experience I had in my own life. And I was raised by hijackals. So I, <laughs> I really know this journey. So you're raised by hijackals. Your first relationship and maybe up to your 10th relationship is going to be a hijackal until you figure it out. Right. But. <clears throat> this this whole thing about learning in the home how to be validated and then what you haven't been validated for you can go looking for on social media once you get there and maybe you're looking for it in the wrong places i had this experience from a hijackal mother after she passed i was I was caught in this, I, I was working with photographs and making them for my children and stuff, albums for my kids. And after I'd finished, I had this thought, do you know, my mother always told me very regularly, it's a good thing you're a smart young lady because you're fat and ugly. And so I decided I'd go looking for validation of fat and ugly from my mother's photographs. <laughs> now, I didn't find them, but why... Why I'm sharing this little bit of story with you is that I sat and had to think about it just like Pooh Bear. And I thought, here's the thing. You know, I didn't approve of my mother. She was racist. She was judgmental. She was harsh. She was critical. She was dismissive. So many things. You know, I used to tell her if I met you at a at a tea party, I'd never invite you out to lunch. Um, I don't want to spend time with you. But the thing was that as a child, I still wanted her approval. So therefore, when I connected all the dots after she'd passed, I realized there was a part of me that was waiting for the approval of someone of whom I don't approve. And if we can have conversations with our, our young people, particularly at home, which is great for you listening, because you can have the, the conversation when they're talking about someone who's being mean or bullying or whatever, you can say to them, well, those people behave this way. Are those the kind of people you'd like to approve of you or should you be looking for another peer group, right? Mm -hmm. And that's what we need to connect the dots with our own lives is to, to be able to help young people see that they may be looking in the wrong place for validation and social media is definitely the wrong place to be looking for validation. Yes, absolutely. And because what social media provides is this confirmation. If I'm feeling sad and lonely, you can access people who 
on some level that is great in terms of that validation, in terms of normalizing, I'm not alone. However, if they're connecting with people who aren't trying to work through that to better themselves, they create this identification group and they get stuck with that identification group. So the validation is twofold there, is that it normalizes, I'm not alone, but yet it, it keeps me at this certain place. And so that is what I believe social media can provide. And I'm not saying social media, I know sometimes it's very heavily loaded in terms sometimes with children, the negativity part of it, I think there's great leaps and bounds culturally that's happened. We just have to understand with anything, with every, any new shift and change, advancement, that there is other sides of a coin, so to speak, regarding it. And mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think that brings up a point for me, Brian, because when you post something on social media, everybody to whom you're connected can see it. So you may have people who are lying low waiting to validate you in a positive way, but you may have people lying low waiting to pounce on you and say, yeah, well, that's absolutely right. You know, somebody, if there were social media in my day and I put, you know, my mother tells me I'm fat and ugly, maybe 10 people would have chimed in and say, that's absolutely right. And why don't you off yourself? Right. Um, That's something that kids today are facing that that could happen and they're not prepared they're just not prepared to have that level of rejection while reaching out for peer validation are they mm-hmm. yeah, absolutely they, they aren't ready and, and we know children and adolescents this is a very vulnerable time in one's life. yeah yeah so how, let, let's just give people some signs. What, what should the adults be looking for in, in noticing that the younger people are struggling with maybe addiction, maybe uh, anxiety, maybe depression, maybe some other form of mental issue? Well, before I address that, one thing that's important to look at is sometimes these signs aren't always so obvious. Right. Sometimes we think that, wow, these major signs are going to just jump out at us. A lot of times these changes can be subtle and they can fly under the radar. Okay. However, some of the major signs though to look for, the more acute signs, are sudden changes. For instance, let's say mentally, emotionally. Let's say your loved one is typically happy-go-lucky and now that you sense that they're sad, maybe some and sometimes they get used to talking positively, more optimistic, and now they're more negative. Maybe they're more pessimistic, okay? Uh, anxiety, right? Maybe socially they used to be around people, love to go out. Now they're locked away in their room and they're not socializing as much, they're not talking as much. If we look at physical stuff, hygiene's a really big thing, right? Mm dress, right? Wow, my son or daughter used to care a lot about how they look and how they dress and, and their hair. And there's a sudden change in that, that could be indicative that something may be going on. And so these signs and symptoms, which is important for family members to know, it's not all of a sudden, wow, we need to admit our loved one into therapy or get into treatment. However, it's something to to look for. Now there's something on the radar that we want to observe. And that's the great time to start having a conversation. I think what happens a lot too time, uh, sometimes is, number one, 
I believe kids are coping. I think a lot of kids are flying under the radar because the assumption is, well, my kid, my child is doing fine post-divorce because he's playing sports or she's doing great in school or she has a lot of friends on, on, on when she's gaming. And, and what happens, they fly under the radar, but that, not realize that that is just a tool to cope. And we miss that. And so really being a little more vigilant, having conversations in a great way. And parents, don't underestimate your gut instinct, right? We know kids, right? We know our kids. We know their tendencies. They talk, their, their voice, their energies, their appearance. We, we know that. So trust your judgment too. Not to say to jump on something right away and intervene to some degree, but at least let that be the pathway to conversation, dialogue, and of course, validation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, we'll always come back to that term validation because it's really key. And I hope that you are listening to get something very important from today. There are so many pieces, but if you could get the validation piece, you know, think about yourself. Were you validated? How do you feel when you are validated? What were you validated for? Sometimes you are validated for keeping your opinions to yourself or being quiet. Um, sometimes you were validated for speaking up, but know what you were validated for and ask yourself, is this how I'd like to continue? Is this the validation and the, the um, script that I'd like to continue to live under? Because uh, so important to know. So you, you brought up that, you know, observing these behaviors is a really good start. Noticing the changes, using your gut. I love that one, Brian, that, okay, uh, something's not right here. I have no clue what it is, but you know, I can ask. And I don't ask in an intrusive way. I can, I raised three kids by myself. I, I know about this. Um, you, you don't ask in an intrusive way, like, what's up with you? Um, you say, you know, uh, you seem a little quiet, more quiet than usual. Do you think you are? You know, get them to become a little self-reflective. Mm-hmm. Um, or, you know, I miss chatting with you at night. Have you been, you know, involved in homework or, mm-hmm. you know, things like that that allow them an opening into a conversation is important. As opposed to that, you know, hey, <laughs> you're quiet. You know, talk about defense making. <laughs> you know, this, this is what we tend to do. And, um, you know, if there is an issue, we want to help our kids get, get the help that they require. And, you know, just a word about ages and stages. Here's an example. You brought up how a, a child or an adolescent deals with divorce. I'm reminded of this time when I had two children come in to see me, and I had been working with a family. The family decided to separate. And I had a seven and a five-year-old, and this is how brain development works. I mentioned this on another podcast as well, episode. And so I said, you know, do you know? And they knew me well, so no problem. I wasn't being evasive. And I said, well, you know, do you know why Daddy has a new house? And the five-year-old said, yes, yes, I do. And because I left my bicycle behind his car, mm-hmm. right? Very cause and effect. And the seven-year-old piped up and said, no, no, no. It's because mommy and daddy used to argue all the time and they wanted to stop. 
right? So totally different uh, brain possibilities with the development of parietal and prefrontal lobes beginning to show up, some rational linear thought, some cause and effect thinking that is not self-centered. And, and it's important for us to know that so much is going on with our kids, isn't it? I mean, in all these ways, when our lives are so busy. Absolutely, absolutely, and and that you you if I could touch upon that point about the divorce. We know, of course, culturally, you know, we have a divorce rate, and so that is one of the most common issues that I see with clients across the board is they come up from a uh, divorced family, mm-hmm. and exactly that concept is is although it's a five and a seven year old as you refer to, there's a major difference between there and what happens. They harbor these faulty beliefs for much of their life. Right, right. A five-year-old, if no one was to sit down and say, no, me and mommy didn't get along so well, and it was better that for you and for all of us, if so forth, we, we live in separate places. But for a child, and I see this happen, to harbor that belief, and I've seen people harbor that belief 10, 15, 20, sometimes a lifetime, is to some degree, and not so much that I left my bicycle, but I wasn't worth it, I'm not good enough, right? And, right. and that's what I see a lot. And, and it all starts off with these misevaluations and assessments. So being able to have those conversations early saying, and don't, what I also tell family members, parents especially, don't underestimate the inside of our loved ones. Our children have a lot of insights. They may not know what's going on, but they can sense energies. They can put some pieces of puzzles together. And we sometimes underestimate that. Well, young Jacob won't understand. He's only five years old. Oh, yeah. That's so common. <laughs> yeah. Samantha's six years old. She won't really understand. And I see it countless time and time again. They, they know something's not right. And, and we just pretend, well, you don't know it. They get this message that, I can't understand. I'm not part of it. And so Mm -hmm. there again, back to validation again. Yeah. And back to your original point, which is the feeling of they don't get me. (laughs) Right. Um, So they're, they're not going to get, you're not going to get your kids if you don't get eye to eye with them and ready to listen. And you need to, as you just said so wisely, don't underestimate the insights of your kids. You know, their point of view from whatever stage of brain development and emotional development they have is so important, such important information for you to have to know how to speak to them, to know what to tell them, to know when they can take on a little more information that's maybe rational, linear information, or if we're just going to stay in the feeling realm and deal with that. Um, And also, big caveat, I think we need to put this one in, and that is, don't share inappropriate age information with your children. Your children do not need to know the ins and outs of your feelings and your divorce and your upset and what you think about the other person and all of the things. I, you know, I have I had a client who, who really the mother turned the ten year old into her husband in a sense, because all the confidences about her, what she felt about her marriage, were being told to the 10-year-old. The 10-year-old shouldn't have had to think about any of that. Absolutely. Absolutely. So very, very important. So 
oh, Sadoma, so many things to talk about. Maybe we'll we'll do a sequel to this and and talk about some some more things. I often do that with my guests, is have them back in three, four months and, and give another opportunity to add more to the conversation. So we'll do that. So how can parents take the proper steps to get their children what they need in these terms we've been speaking about? Exactly that. Trying to understand what the needs are, right? And, and by listening, that's the first and foremost step. So listening and understanding what their needs are and maybe the child's own terms, right? To understand by everything we've talked about through mirroring, through rephrasing, we can formulate and interpret what is what is he or she trying to tell me? And I think that is one of the struggles that we have, adult to adult, employee to employee, boss to employee, and so forth, is all of a sudden we go into this mode of solution. We need to get rid of it, that pain. And all of a sudden, wow, what are we talking about? We didn't even operationally define what we're talking about. So really trying to understand what is my child really trying to tell me? Okay, and so some of the things we can do, of course, uh, if they're in school, refer to your school counselor, right? Refer to your school counselor. Uh, talk to your friends and peers, and if, if, if what they have done, maybe referrals for therapists and agencies and so forth. There are a lot of resources out there that you can, there's another benefit of, of internet and social media is we can access things so much we don't have to go to the library, we have information that's quickly accessible. But definitely there are a lot, a lot of resources out there that you can refer to. But uh, upfront with that um, is, I think to me to some degree, right, that's the secondary part. The first part is what is my child trying to tell me? And that's the first step we do. And if we can't do it as parents, then we consult with someone to help guide us, a professional, to further assess what those needs are. Yes, great information. And I know that people can find you on Psychology Today, right? Psychologytoday.com. And if you search my name, I'm there. Okay, well, let's spell it for them. Dr. Brian, B-R-I-A-N, Luquanan, L-I-C-U-A-N-A-N. And you can find him there. And if you'd like to speak to him specifically, you'll find him there in his contact information. If you'd like more information about the institutions that he works with, go to abetterliferecovery.com. So thank you so much for all the insights that you've shared. I think we've just opened the conversation in so many ways to lay down the concepts of validation and listening and using our gut to recognize when there's shifts in our children and know that they need our help. So many pieces. So do you have a last piece of advice or something that you'd like to share? I encourage parents don't give up hope, right? The one thing we cannot do is give up hope, right? But also we have to recognize to some point where what we're doing isn't working, okay? And that's the biggest blockage I see sometimes is we're so stuck in the ways that we were taught growing up, what we, this template, this script that you used earlier, narrative of how we do things, solving problems relate to people. But we can get to that level, level of humility that, okay, what I'm not doing isn't right, is a first step, in addition to hearing what their child is really saying. And so have hope, because treatment help really does work, and people can get better. But it 
it's an all hands deck type of mentality. Absolutely. Great words to end with. My guest today is Dr. Brian Luquanen. As I've told you, you can find him at abetterliferecovery.com or go to psychologytoday.com. Put his name in, Dr. Brian, B-R-I-A-N-L-I-C-U-A-N-A-N. I'm Dr. Roberta Shaler, the Relationship Help Doctor. You can always find me at transformingrelationship.com. Transformingrelationship.com. Dot com and come on over join in my membership program where we can talk directly or at least type to each other there are various levels of, of things that you can find over there for interaction with me if you want to engage in the answers to finding a way out of the crazy making relationships in your life transforming relationship.com so until we meet again Take good care of yourself, recognize that you matter, and treat yourself accordingly because you do. Thanks for being here for today's episode of Emotional Savvy. If you want to deepen your emotional savvy, make shifts in your relationships, and enjoy life and relationships more, work with me, Dr. Roberta Shaler. Get my books, enjoy my courses, or work with me directly. You can do that by visiting forrelationshiphelp.com, F-O-R, relationship, H-E-L-P.com, and subscribe to Tips for Relationships now. Don't miss a thing. Be empowered this week with more emotional savvy.